Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. California is still reeling from the horrendous mass shooting in San Jose, one of the worst in our state's history. A rail transit facility that serves Silicon Valley in Northern California is now the scene of the nation's newest mass shooting investigation. Every time there's a tragedy like this, it sparks painful conversations and renewed calls for gun control to stop mass shootings. They are horrific. Uh, They are unacceptable. They are America's disease, and we need to do better. And now the debate's intensified. A federal judge has overturned a ban on assault weapons that's been in place in our state for more than three decades. California Governor Gavin Newsom is slamming a federal judge's ruling that overturns the state's three-decade-old ban on assault weapons. He calls it a, quote, direct threat to public safety. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. On today's show, we're going to hear from people whose voices aren't usually part of this debate. People who've long been on the fence or hesitant about buying guns until, they say, this past year pushed them over the edge. At first, our top story, KPIX cameras were at the scene as another Asian was attacked in San Francisco. We asked city leaders what's being done to stop it. Asian American women don't fit the stereotype of a typical gun owner, But some are deciding to buy guns for protection. I thought it was a matter of time. I was very, very angry. I'm so tired of being scared. Reporter Christine Wynn tells us about two women from Southern California who are learning to shoot guns while navigating the stigma around gun ownership within their own families. Last summer, after the rush on toilet paper, After people spat on Asians and even stabbed them for bringing the Kung flu to the U.S., after protests for racial justice, I was hiking with a friend. We'd been Girl Scout moms together. The trail in the Los Gatos Hills was empty, and it was quiet except for birds and bugs. A helicopter hummed in the distance. I didn't record our conversation, but at one point, my friend paused, whispered, You know a mom from the old troop is learning to shoot guns. A lot of Asian moms are. Are you in? It wasn't for me, but then later I thought, why are we whispering? There's a stigma around gun ownership in parts of California. And for some Asians, we don't talk about guns. Gun owners are violent. My friends are high achieving, respectable, conscientious. But last year, things felt more dangerous. If someone threatened you based on how you looked, If it was unclear the police would protect you, what else did you have to worry about? 
Industry data show in the first half of 2020, gun ownership increased throughout the U.S. among people from all backgrounds. The same data show that among Asians, purchases were up over 40 percent, but only a few media outlets noticed. And the reports always featured Asian men. What about Asian women? I spoke to gun club managers throughout the state, and they don't collect exact numbers on race and gender, but many told me they've seen more Asians, including Asian women. And I spent time with some of these women. They don't fit stereotypes of conservative gun owners, but they want to defend themselves, even have a good time. I'll tell you about two of the women I met. End of the day, kiddos in bed, so I've loaded up this magazine with... Uh, snap caps, aka dummy bullets, and now it's time to practice dry firing. Uh, my name is Sam Tayak. My pronouns are they, them. This is a good way to practice gun safety. Treat every firearm as if it's loaded. Sam practices dry firing at home, which is handling a gun without ammo. Sam's 34, and they live in LA County. They're a second-generation Filipino-American and grew up shuttling between the U.S. and the Philippines. I've always been pretty liberal as far as my politics are concerned, except for this one thing. So I guess I just had a very different perspective of firearms. It wasn't so politicized in the Philippines, I guess. You grow up seeing guards with arms and your uncles have firearms and all that stuff. And I just never really got into it because it seemed intimidating. After studying nursing, Sam took a break to care for their mom, grandmother, and child. Right now, I am an outdoor educator, naturalist. Sam and their mom love to go backpacking, but Sam says people of color, especially women, aren't always welcome in the outdoors. So, you know, I've been told at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, setting up camp with all the other backpackers to hurry back up to the rim, otherwise I'm going to miss my Chinese tour bus. My mom got grilled by a ranger trying to get a National Parks Pass at Joshua Tree because they didn't believe that she was a citizen. Sam says they've always had to deal with baseline racism, but... It got bad during COVID. It got people messing with my car and telling me to go back where I came from in front of my kid and raising their voices and saying people like you shouldn't be in public. And then... You start seeing the elders being targeted. I'm the eldest, so I worry about my mom. So I finally decided, you know, it's time to just bite the bullet. (laughs) It was actually Sam's mom who first brought up getting guns. She's a good shot, too. She's pretty good. I mean, she's, she's a targeted demographic for a lot of these attacks, so I'm glad she's learning. Sam's a survivor of domestic violence, which they say is part of why they need a gun. Sam bought it only a few months before the Atlanta spa shootings hit the news. Like almost every Asian American I've spoken to, for Sam, it felt personal. And it freaked me out. I was very, very angry. I'm so tired of being scared that now I just almost go straight to anger and it But it wasn't surprising, honestly. Sam says Asians in general are subject to racism, but that Asian women in particular are expected to be subservient. And if they're not, they experience an even stronger backlash. We tend to be fetishized in a very violent kind of way. 
Some of Sam's relatives think they should keep their heads down and not draw attention to themselves. But we know no matter what, you should be prepared to handle your own stuff. Because it's, I'm sorry, but it's a crapshoot. They didn't expect to be targeted either. You try to punch my mom and kick her in the face, I will shoot you. Check the barrel, unload the magazine, check the magazine, visual, physical inspection. Then I'm going to be locking everything up in a safe, properly out of reach of children and thieves and all that. So, cool. Svetlana Kim is another woman I met through a network of Asian gun owners in California. She's a little more circumspect about why she's picked up shooting, other than to say she believes in the right to protect herself. My life, I'm responsible for my life to keep myself safe. Svetlana is 47 and lives in Downey, outside L.A. I also got my MBA from Pepperdine University. Um, currently, I'm staying home mom, um, working on my CPA license. Svetlana is ethnically Korean and came to the U.S. 15 years ago from Uzbekistan. I think growing up in Uzbekistan, uh, sometimes I got bullied. And sometimes because we, we were only one Asians over there, sometimes you felt that racial discrimination. So I was like, I'm going to go to the United States of America. I don't want my kids going through the unfairness that I went to. In the late 1930s, Joseph Stalin deported ethnic Koreans living in Russia to Central Asia. Growing up in Uzbekistan, Svetlana felt like a perpetual foreigner. She first moved to L.A.'s Koreatown, but then moved to Downey three years ago when she got married. She's never been targeted, but she follows the news, and she says she's not taking chances. So this winter, she bought a gun. It wasn't an easy decision. My father was doctor of history, and uh, my mother was pediatrician. We never been close to the guns, and even when I moved here, I, how should I say, I'm a book girl, always studying, um, don't like aggressiveness or violence. There was a stigma around gun ownership. If we let them know that we have a gun, they're like, oh, something wrong with you, you're violent, something like that, right? She saw their point. Oh my gosh, if gun in the house, it can cause some accidents, right? One of her cousins had an accidental shooting in his home. No one died, but his daughter was injured. That scared Svetlana. But 2020 worried her too. The news was one bad story after another. Violent protests and hate crimes against Asians. Svetlana wanted to keep her daughter safe. She needed to feel safe. So even though Svetlana thought guns were dangerous, she decided the best way to quash her anxiety was to get good at handling guns herself. So she bought a 40-millimeter semi-automatic. It's a powerful gun, and she was nervous about telling her friends. Their reaction surprised her. When I called them, I said, oh, I got my gun. They're like, good, congratulations, we have two. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I'm the last one who's getting it. <laughs> While studying to be a CPA, she squeezed in shooting lessons. I was really good. I never thought that I'm going to be so good in shooting. I asked Svetlana about the Atlanta shootings. 
It bothered Svetlana that the police dispatcher had a hard time understanding the Asian caller as she hid from a gunman. This is a 1916 Penang Road. Repeat the address. Yeah, of course. Uh, in your library right now, so can help me come. Okay, repeat the address. They have a gun by each line, not a real gun, that's why. They have a gun, he said? The police arrived within minutes, but for Svetlana, any wait is too long. So being a gun owner now, I just thought if one of them just had a gun, they couldn't prevent and stop it. They could have saved some lives. I know. Where's the person who is robbing the spa? Where is he right now? I don't know. I'm hiding right now. Okay. Uh, did you have a description of him? Did you see him? Oh, yeah. Just a white guy. A white male? What is he wearing? I don't know. Please come, okay? Thank you, please. I met Sam and Svetlana right after the mass shooting in Atlanta. But two weeks before this story aired, a transit worker in San Jose shot and killed nine of his co-workers. What did Sam and Svetlana think? Well, Svetlana thought the San Jose shooter was mentally ill. She said the attack was part of a trend in senseless, inexplicable violence that made her want to seek protection. Sam said, When toxic masculinity strikes again, it's almost like we refuse to hold these men accountable. You know what? I might get some people pissed off at me, but I'm I'm even for strict gun control. In the event that we can guarantee um, a nonviolent society and a just method of intervention when a crime happens that is effective and non-discriminatory, I'll turn in my gun. But until then, Sam says they're keeping their gun. For The California Report, I'm Christine Nguyen. We've been asking you to share your stories about loved ones you've lost to COVID-19 here in California. This week, we learn about the ripple effects when a single parent dies from the virus. 46-year-old Maribel Villarreal passed away last October in Oakland, leaving behind her 10-year-old son, David. KQED's Julia McAvoy talked to David's aunt and his teacher, They say Maribel's death called each of them to take on roles they never imagined. Susana Torres had always thought of her sister as resilient. She fought the good fight while she was here. Just like everybody, she had struggles. She had, you know, moments of hardship. Susana is the youngest of the five siblings in their immigrant family. Her sister Maribel, everyone called her Mari, was the middle child. We grew up in a um, domestic violence, alcohol kind of environment. It was hard. Sitting on her front porch, Susana says Mari and her son lived in the home's downstairs apartment for little rent, sort of under the wing of Susana and her husband. She was very sensitive. And, you know, David's dad not being around. It was hard. 
Mari found a lot of joy in caring for children, always babysitting Susana's two kids when they were little. She loved to cook. She was really good at cooking. Her laughs were contagious. Mari found work in a childcare center, and she also cleaned houses. What Mari earned, she spent on instilling in her son a sense of possibility. You know, she will save her money, and even though she didn't have a car, she took David to Monterey Aquarium on public transportation. When Mari got sick, Susana was the one who drove her to the community clinic and then to the hospital, where they talked over Zoom. You know, stay strong, keep fighting. Uh, David, it's, it's fine. He's here with us. Don't worry about him. It was Susana who set up the last virtual visit with Mari and her son. And Susana was the one who had to make the hard decisions when doctors said there was nothing more to be done. It just happened really quick. You don't have time to say goodbyes. As we spoke, one of Mari's friends pulled up in her truck to drop off some chocolate for David. The friend is part of Susana's church community. It was church members like her who brought food and flowers to the family. It was another community, David's school, that helped raise money for his mom's funeral. From the teachers, from, um, you know, everybody that knew David and uh, everybody that knew my sister. Okay, el link está en el chat, estudiantes. At Manzanita Seed Elementary, David's bilingual immersion school, there was also grief and confusion at first. The link is in the chat. Por favor, entren. Myra Alvarado, her students call her Maestra Alvarado, is David's teacher. Jesus, gracias por prender tu cámara. I knew, you know, that there was this outpouring of, like, uh, support from the community that kids were going to hear about it. Manzanita Seed draws students from Oakland's Fruitvale neighborhood, which is majority Latinx and has been hard hit by the virus. It happened especially in our communities, but like I still was in disbelief. And so I was just trying to figure out what to do. Maestra Alvarado saw that a parent had started a GoFundMe to help Mari's family, and she worried about David. She kept checking in with his aunt, Susana. If he needs time, let him take time. He'll catch up. He's a very engaged student. Whenever he's in class, he's like fully there, really funny kid. I see a lot of the drive in David that mom had this high expectation of him. Both David's teacher and his aunt felt it would help him to get back on Zoom with classmates. First, Maestro Alvarado met with David separately to try and understand how he was feeling, to prepare him if she could. Some of your classmates might want to reach out to you and talk about this. How do you feel about that? He said, like, unless he brings it up, he doesn't want it. And I was like, okay, I respect that. And thank you for letting me know. I'll let your classmates know. By the way, I didn't feel it was right for me to interview 10-year-old David about his mom's death either, which is why you don't hear directly from him in our story here. When questions do come up about the virus from students, Maestra Alvarado has had to negotiate this sensitive discussion over Zoom. Um, no, Sesto, pero escuche que 
um, alguien en, el, en la escuela tiene co el, la coronavirus? Sí, pero no hay que preocuparse por ello porque... Like when students no, shared in the no, chat that one of their family members had COVID, though none of them lost a parent, as David did. The empathy, right, of knowing what it feels like to be scared. And some students were expressing in the chat, like, we're really young, I can't imagine losing my parent at this age. As David returned to school, Susana and her husband decided it would be best for him to live with them. She's been making green enchiladas his mom used to cook for him. Years pass by and we are still gonna miss her. And that's okay. You know, I'm always here if you wanna talk about anything. One of the things I did tell David um, after his mom had passed is that, you know, I remember how much your mom cared about your learning and I know how proud she would be of you and how proud she is of all the work that you're doing and how awesome you're participating in class. He's like, gracias, maestra. At the end of the school year, Maestra Alvarado's class met up in person at a nearby park. David hugged everyone and then he hugged the air. He said it was for his mom. For the California Report, I'm Julia McAvoy. are mostly out for the summer across California, but we're going to hear now about a charter school on the edge of the Mojave Desert that's going to look very different in the fall. That's because it's hosting a new junior ROTC program connected to the U.S. Space Force, which is the country's newest military branch. The California Report's Amanda Font has our story. There's a chance your only reference for the Space Force is the Netflix comedy series starring Steve Carell and John Malkovich, making fun of it. My guys are estimating we have around 10 hours before they're too far away to reattach. 10 hours is easy. We're going to Apollo 13 the Space Force spirit. Or remember last summer when the official Space Force logo came out and we all stopped and thought, wait a minute, isn't that the Starfleet insignia from Star Trek? No response on any Starfleet channel. Spacecraft approaching from inner planet. Yep, yep, yep. Well, they've been using that Delta since 1961. So that predates Star Trek. <laughs> this is Colonel George Armstrong. The they he's referring to is an early Air Force division that later became the Air Force Space Command. In December 2019, that agency was converted into an independent branch, the Space Force the newest U.S. military branch since 1947. I can see the relation between Space Force and Air Force to be kind of like the Navy and Marines. You know, they, they always work together. Colonel Armstrong spent his nearly three-decade career in the Air Force before retiring. But he's really only retired from military service. Since then, he's been teaching at the Academy of Academic Excellence, a small K-12 charter school in Apple Valley, a high desert town in San Bernardino County. I took a you know regular job. I was a, I'm a chemistry teacher, so I taught math and chemistry. I was a math department chair. 
But Colonel Armstrong's real passion and what first drew him to the academy was the school's emphasis on science education. I said, you know, this is a perfect place to do uh, Air Force Junior ROTC because they were doing space and air and space back then. They had their connection with NASA and all that. And I said, well, this is perfect. We need to get a unit going. It's become a very popular program. About a quarter of the high school students are cadets. I don't know why or, <laughs> you know, I wish I could find a formula or bottle it or whatever. But for some reason, all of the top end students join ROTC here. This year, we have 171. And now the Academy is counting down to the launch of a brand new program, one that could open a whole new frontier to these cadets. They've been selected as one of the first 10 Space Force Junior ROTC units in the country, and the only one in California. They seem like a natural choice. Like Armstrong says, the school has a connection to NASA because they help operate the Goldstone Apple Valley Radio Telescope, where students can collect real scientific data about black holes or the sun and scan for radio signals in space to help SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But the school was almost overlooked. Because we we're not really near a Space Force base. Until a fortuitous turn of events. Earlier this year, the cadets were learning about CubeSats. You know, the small little satellites, I guess the size of a loaf of bread or whatever. And, you know, I said, hey, cadets, how about if we uh, develop our own CubeSat? You know, would that be cool? The colonel reached out to the regional ROTC director to get some more information. And what I got back was from the new director, well, you just emailed me at the right time because, yes, we're looking for units to convert to Space Force Junior ROTC. They applied, and the school's science curriculum and NASA ties impressed. Plus, in April, Los Angeles Air Force Base was made a Space Force Command Center, so now they are close to a base. At a school where JROTC is a big deal, there's a lot of excitement. And we were all just sitting here, and then my phone chimes. And I look at it, as I read it, I'm like, what the heck? And I literally start screaming into the mic saying, oh my gosh, we're going to turn into a Space Force. It's just been announced. High school senior Jennifer Weiss has been the cadet group commander of this unit for the last year. So as of right now, I am a cadet major. So I am the highest ranking. I am a fourth year cadet. She's loved her time in the program and all the things the cadets get to do. We go down to one of the Air Force bases and we get to actually go on a C-17 and fly. And we go up to Big Bear where it's high altitudes and we just do an entire camp that's like based on the Air Force. And it's really fun. As a Space Force unit, the cadets will get to do even more, like building satellites or potentially watch a rocket launch at the newly converted Vandenberg Space Force Base in Santa Barbara County. Liftoff. The program officially kicks off in August when the new school year begins. As a graduating senior, Jennifer won't be around for that. And she is a little bummed out about it. But I'm just happy for the incoming cadets who will actually have the opportunity to participate. It's, it's a little stressful, but we're all super excited for it. We're all trying to figure out what to do, how to prepare, where we go from here, prepare next year's cadets for it. We're all like really excited and ready for it. Future cadets like astronomy enthusiast Natalie Ritter. I always wanted to be an RTC, and so when I heard it was Space Force RTC, I got even more excited because it's two things that I really love, and they're coming together, and I get to be a part of that, so it's really cool. 
Natalie will be a freshman in the new school year. She has big plans for the future. I'd like to be an aerospace engineer and a pilot, uh, maybe an astronaut if I can. Yeah, I'd for sure want to fly a rocket if I got the chance. She's hoping what she'll learn in four years as a Space Force JROTC cadet will set her on a path to the stars. For the California Report, I'm Amanda Font. And that's it for the California Report magazine this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon, Amanda Font is our director, and Brendan Willard is our engineer. Our team also includes Mary Franklin Harvin and Hector Arsate. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.